Welcome back, everyone. This is Eric Ellison with the Digital Education Podcast. And I had the opportunity to um, interview or have a conversation with a friend a while back. And we're kind of doing a part two because there's a second book. And the second book is called Pivot, the Priorities, Practices, and Powers that Can Transform Your Church into a, a Tove Culture. And we'll talk about Tove and all those types of things in a little bit. But I'm back with Laura Berenger. And she's a kindergarten teacher. She's also a co-author of a church called Tove and sharing God's love, the Jesus Creed for children. And then we're also here today with special guest, her dad, who is Scott McKnight, um, who is a professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary and a recognized authority on the New Testament, early Christianity and historical Jesus. And he's the co-author with her, with Laura of these two books. So I'm super excited to have both of you with me today. This is really cool for me. Um, but Laura, I'm going to start with you because the first time we had the opportunity to talk about a church called Tove, you were a reluctant author. You were reluctant in stepping into this space and probably, I probably in some ways still are. Um, but as you kind of, you know, it seems like in this book, you know, you've stepped into a space that now you're becoming more comfortable in writing your second book with your dad, what, what is it that you've discovered about yourself or how, you know, what, or, or just in general, um, when it comes to this book and this journey? I would still describe myself as a, re as reluctant. I, I wrote about this in pivot, um, in one of the chapters I wrote about how I can start to feel quite uncomfortable when I do these interviews and we've done, gosh, it has to be close to 200 of them now. And I still will have moments where I think, you know, so, uh, somebody will ask me a pastor, maybe, or a podcaster, or some kind of church leader, Laura, what do you think about, um, I don't know, the sexual abuse crisis in the American church? And I'll be like, I was just making back to school kindergarten ready for school confetti. Like why are it? I can, I still have those moments where I feel like, how did I land in this spot? I, this is something I wanted my dad to do. I, I wanted him to write the book, a church called Tove. Um, it's not a place that I ever imagined for myself. Um, and I still have a lot of moments like that where I feel that way, but I also am, I'm getting more, I'm, I feel more comfortable. Um, but overall, I just look at it and it's, it's by the grace of God that I'm sitting here and the opportunities really that my dad has given me. He was the one with the platform. And like I said, I wanted him to be the one to write. And he would probably say I pestered him until he finally did. <laughs> I would say that. I would. And I, and I have said that 185 times. <laughs> so Scott, what was it like when, you know, she's pestering you to write the first book, but then even as you get into the second book about pivot, right? You know, it's, it's, what's it like now this second time round to write a book with your daughter and to have these conversations about culture transformation in churches. And I think about like the wisdom in this book is so much about, or it, it's organizational transformation that's healthy and good in general too. But like, what was that experience like, right? in the second book and continuing this journey with Laura? 
Well, um, it's good to be with you, Eric. The thing, the thing about it is, um, I, as I told Laura when we first started, I had other things to write. I was writing a book on the Book of Revelation, <laughs> and I didn't want to do this. Um, but the life, uh, life changed with the Willow Creek story with Harvest Bible Chapel, with all these stories, the Catholic churches, the Southern Baptist churches, and I was being consulted because I wrote one blog post uh, on my old blog at, at Pathios on Willow Creek, and I basically told them to knock it off and to admit what they were doing and uh, try to describe what, what, was, what was actually happening. And I used at that time the idea that every church needs, we need more goodness in churches. And that really got a jump start. So I began talking about in classes. But um, my concern with Laura was I, I, I was convinced that she could write and what she couldn't write, I could help her with. And then she could help me with what I was writing. So that two heads are better than one, you know as an old British guy said to, to us one time, even if they're sheep heads, they're better than one. <laughs> but um, the the real challenge for me, for Laura, was was going to be in the, in the podcast in the question and answer periods, because I've been doing this for 41 years. And uh, that's just as a professor, you know, and I had 10 years before I was a professor. And I get asked questions about everything. And from every angle, and people want to know particulars, like, what do you think of Jeremiah 2017? You go, how in the world do I know what's, what's the, you know, I, I know that passage. All right. But it, it's it's that sort of thing that I thought, this, this is where I would be concerned for Laura. She's not trained in theology, in Bible exegesis, but it's not even that. You can be fully trained, pretty well trained. And you'll be asked questions. It takes a lifetime to be able to answer the sorts of questions that lay people ask. And uh, they, you know, like I got a long letter today from a guy whose wife is convinced she's lost salvation. You know, why am I being asked this question? You know, uh, this is not, but it's it's something that we deal with. So, so we write this book. And it generated just so many podcasts and conversations. And Eric, the un, unwritten part of it is that we, Laura and I both got letters constantly from people three to five a week for quite a while. I mean, months to the point where uh, we pretty much knew that the problem was power abuse in churches with pastors and leaders and that we needed to there were people who wanted our opinion in light of Tove on how to respond to those sorts of questions. So we kind of put together a bit of a proposal and the, frankly, the publisher fiddled with it long enough that it took too long. And by the time uh, we got down to writing this book, we were starting to press on Laura's schedule of getting back to classes. Um, when was that a year ago, I guess? No. It was yeah. two summers ago is when we did yeah. the writing. I yeah. was writing, I remember writing in August thinking, I just had all of June and July and now August is here and I have to spend long days writing. Yeah, because June and July, I mean, I had to write, 
I wrote the first draft of most of these chapters. Now, Laura wrote sections. Um, you know, I'd say, Laura, you can write on this. I, you can read this book and read this study, and then you can do this. We both read uh, Edgar Schein's book, which is just brilliant on this topic. And I happen to have a, a friend who was a close associate and colleague of Edgar Schein. So he filled me in on his personal life. So um, we had to work together on this, but it was a different experience than the first one, because the first one, we had all kinds of time, more time. This one, uh, it got pressed toward the end. And then when the edits came in, Laura was still teaching and it wasn't so, you know, they, they'll give you like, we want two weeks. Uh, and I want to, and frankly, I want to say, it took you six months to get to fiddle with this stuff. And now all of a sudden you want two weeks from us. Well, come on. We've got we've got schedules, too. And plus, you know, I have a, a life as well. So, <laughs> well, it I, lo was, I, I love it from that perspective because it's it's the classic thing like Laura's teachers. Right. And, yeah. then, and then Scott, you know, as you as you talk about it as a professor, is it, it is that like what we expect out of our students is not what we expect out of ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. I thought you were gonna say you were most worried about me and the public attacks we would take. Yeah, well, that's to me, that's well, yes, but I mean, like Laura, a couple times she's gotten wanted to get on podcasts. I'm thinking, you better be careful. Who knows what they're gonna <laughs> But, but she survived them both, I think. I remember the two. One of them was, well, I won't go there. So so, um, so, so, jump in there, Laura, real quick as you, as you think about that. Because even in the book, you mentioned about like things that you would have done different, you know, in the process, you know, early on. But then things that you're learning and discovering as you enter into the space and speak in some ways from from you know the place that you get to speak from you know what are you discovering as you try to help you know people understand this goodness um and and a, and a better way of being so when i when the willow creek story broke in 2018 i i just spouted off i didn't have I didn't really have a platform and I didn't really think anybody was paying attention to what I was saying. And I've learned through this process and through publishing and through podcasting and the interviews and webinars and events that we've done that I need to be more careful with what I say. I can't just spout things off and judge people that I've never met. And that really the point, the whole purpose of the work that my dad and I do is to provide a picture of a better way forward. So it's not, for me, it's become less about criticizing. Obviously there's some times when that's appropriate and needed, but it's less about criticizing and it's more about pointing people and churches and organizations with a better way forward. Yeah. And so this is where the great part of the book is, you know, it's this pivot, right? How do you get organizations, churches in particular, in this case, to pivot? I think of schools. I've worked with a lot of schools in the pivot. Scott, I want to ask you a question, because one of the things that we say, you know, I, I deal a lot in innovation that um, in, in educational innovation or organizational or systems innovation, 
one of the things that a friend of mine said many, many years ago that has resonated with me for, for a long time now is that innovation comes out of pain. How do we get to these places where, you know, this pivot or cultural transformation doesn't necessarily need to come out of pain? Because usually when I see organizational change, it's because, and you highlight it in the book, because they're unwell um, or oftentimes because they're dying and they need to do something dramatic. I, I wonder on the other sides of things, you talk about the health, you know, kind of the church that's being successful that may need a pivot, they often don't see it. And then the toxic churches, you know, there's a reason oftentimes they're toxic and they don't move <laughs> into those places until the pain comes. But but how what would you say about culture transformation in churches in particular, but that might translate to organizations overall that, that kind of get us to this place of, hey, how do you know if you're should pivot, ready for a pivot or a pivot is necessary or, or is, is necessary or you're kind of done. Make sure you know that uh, I came up with the title of this book, Pivot, though. So oh, here we go. <laughs> you did. I said, Dad. Then I, then no, I Aaron, found out that everybody's Aaron, using this term. I said, Dad, we cannot use the word pivot. It's a friend's episode. And he said, well, I've never heard of that. Nobody's watched that. Like, but that's yes, all I Aaron. that's all I think of when I hear the title of the book. Right. Is and my colleague, my colleague at work, my my very dear Jewish friend, was like, she marched into my office, my into my classroom one morning, and is like, "Are you kidding me? Your book is called Pivot," and she's bringing me coloring pages of Friends episodes, and she was like, "I can't stop laughing." And I said, "I said I know. I told them. I told. I told my dad, but he said no." But I, but, but there's but a great I, analogy I, in there, right? Yeah. I love the title. Now I like, I really love the title and I really love how they played off of, um, if you've seen the cover, you can see Tove and Pivot. So yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, great. it was just, it's funny how it came about. Okay. Uh, right. <laughs> Conversion. Conversion occurs as a result of crisis. People don't just convert or transform or change without a reason. So I would agree with you that I, I don't, I don't know that language about educational organizational transformation, uh, but I do I do think Edgar Schein talks about this. There has to be a reason for a group to want to make a pivot, to make a and when I mean pivot, we mean pivot. We don't mean uh, we're gonna we're gonna uh, put a different set of flowers on top of the piano. You know, we're we're talking about getting rid of the piano. Um, so uh, we. we 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 know that it, uh, some of these churches that are toxic with toxic leaders, they're they're going to have to go through a very serious process of illumination to think about this. Tove churches, you know, they are always willing to learn about themselves and grow, so they're not such a problem. But uh, when I wrote, when we wrote Tove, I was actually asked by a good friend of mine who's a, a pastor of a pretty good sized church to come up with some kind of uh, assessment tool. Oh, I went, well, I got to read what an assessment tool is and how you rate these sorts of things. So, you know, I thought I'm not going to just make something up out of my head. So I took uh, the eight, seven characteristics of Tove and said, okay, now let's try to figure out if your church reflects these things. So Laura and I designed a thing that we call the Tove tool. We believe that if churches 
will seriously consider the Tov tool and go through it, let's say, one theme a month or every other month, that over time, things will percolate to the surface in their church of areas that are in need of very serious improvement or change and even deep change and penetration. So we think the Tove tool will provoke conversations that could actually put a church into a crisis of sorts. Um, <clears throat> they thought that they were great on empathy, and then they've discovered that they're actually got NDA policies. They've got all kinds of uh, getting rid of people that were not done very well, and they got to figure out why these kinds of things are happening at the church, and that can lead to lots of self-discovery. So that would be our response, is we think that we've provided an opportunity in the Tove tool for for the opportunity to precipitate some crises in churches about what's going on in the church. Self-discovery. It takes a fairly sophisticated, humble, confident leader to guide a church through a pivot, like in a cultural transformation, like you're talking about. Um, and we know like it's really this kind of interesting kind of conundrum that we place ourselves in is that the to toxic churches or the toxic organizations tend to have really strong leadership and and really kind of you know and that's what makes them you know that's what's led them to excellence or greatness a lot of times with the underlying toxicity whereas then when you're talking about these transformations it takes a high quality strong leader as well to guide and to humbly lead an organization through um this process Laura, this is a question for you because you you you've dealt with all kinds of school leaders, but then you see all kinds of leaders in general. Like what, like what do we know about leadership, or what have you discovered about leadership and leading the process of transformation, and this process that strength of leadership is key, but it's a different sort of strength of leadership than often what makes, you know, places so successful with the underlying toxicity. I think it is a willingness to self-reflect because a willingness to look at oneself, which maybe is the hardest thing of all to do, and admit to yourself and admit to those around you where your weaknesses are and also listen, listen to what your staff is saying. We have a wonderful new leadership in our school, um, superintendent and assistant superintendent. And in one year's time, I saw a huge boost in morale just because of who they are, people felt safe, and they were willing to listen and self-reflect. And I'm I'm also really encouraged by the story that we, I think I did this part, the beginning of the book, the case study, renovation of the church with Mike Lucan and Kent Carlson. That all, they were leading, a they were pastors of a mega church. And that all started because of their willingness 
to pay attention to what was stirring in their spirit that it, it didn't feel right. They they would say we but we, we felt like we were feeding a monster. We would put on this amazing weekend service and then we would crash because emotionally because the next week had to be even better. And they read, they said they read Eugene Peterson and they they read Dallas Willard and some of those soulful writings and realized we've got it all wrong. We have to pivot. We have to completely transform who we are. And I love the comments by Kent Carlson, the vulnerability, how he said, I liked feeling important. I liked standing in front of the congregation on Sunday morning and having a line of people waiting to meet me. And he had to, you know, confess that to himself and to others and to God. But that's where it all started was a willingness to admit, look at where you are, and then be willing to pivot, to change. You know, um, I want to piggyback on that. And that's that's the story of Mike Lucan and Kent Carlson. That is quite a story and uh, of what they did in that church. And it didn't exactly leave the church the same. I mean, their numbers dropped dramatically. But I, I would say that w- what you said is that, it you know, strong leaders produce successful churches, I'm not. I I'm not sure. I would say that. I would say uh, certain kinds of temperaments and character characteristics and personalities produce successful organizations that grow by success in quantitative numbers. But we want to push toward a Tove character, producing a different kind of success, a different definition of success. And I do think that domineering, charismatic highly talented personalities can uh, create, as it were, an organization that grows and flourishes in, in external numbers, and a lot of good things will happen. But over time, the rottenness of the toxicity will degrade so much of what is done that um, you know, you'll end up starting all over again. And how many churches have we witnessed it doing this? Well, and, and you point out in the book, right? I, I like how you use Fred Rogers, you use some different characters. And I think, Laura, you mentioned that your dad pushed back on you on like using examples who've died, right? Yeah, he said then, only dead people. I think, I think sometimes like now, you know, like we look at the United States and what we've learned about our leaders and our historical yeah. leaders that like, even in their death, we should push back on some of their stories and some of their histories yeah, and right. just even continue to like walk in that graceful and the humble place about our own lives and our own situations. But, but you do point out in the book, somebody that I'm somewhat familiar with because of where I live, um, Ray Stedman. And mm-hmm. And Ray took a huge risk, but I also love the fact that the churches that kind of came out of Ray's church, um, Peninsula Bible Church, and then the other churches, one of the things that, that that even Ray did that I thought was interesting is that he wasn't the only preaching pastor, right? So like his churches, the churches that came out of his movement, they're usually three preaching pastors that they all had expertise within the church. There may have been an executive pastor, but then they shared the spotlight and they shared, and then they worked together on the development. And that's one of the things I think in our culture, and I'm wondering about maybe Scott, you know, is, is how do we more broadly share leadership 
but then also how do we, when we live in a culture that highlights and spotlights the communicator in particular, whether that be Steve Jobs in technology, whether that be Bill Hybels at Wolf Creek or, you know, James McDonald during my time at Harvest Bible or whoever it might be, how, how might we just even think differently about the Ray Stedman experience of saying, you know what, I'm going to take the spotlight off of myself and share it with others. But then also that place where he just created a, a Sunday evening service where it's like, we're going to see what happens. Yeah. Well, I'm old enough to remember Ray Stedman when this was all going on, and I got Body Life when it first came out. I was in college. I taught it to a youth group, and, and my pastor thought I was nuts talking about this stuff. But uh, nobody was talking about spiritual gifts then. But let me put it this way. Ray Stedman, I don't—I think I'm accurate on this. I've read the, the only biography about him that I know that has been in print. He did share the platform, but he shared the platform because he wanted to share power in a genuine way. So he didn't, you know, it's one thing to put other people up on the platform, uh, especially put people up on the platform who are not quite as good as you, so that everybody will still remember that you're the good one on the platform, you know. Um, that's Ray Stedman really did want to share power that comes from character to share power i was with ray stedman and his wife in 1975 in belgium it may have been france france Are you have such a good memory and and that's what i do um <laughs> He allowed his wife to speak, and she got up and was pretty critical of him. And then, then he got up and said, you know, what she says is true. This is true about me. Uh, I'm not perfect. And I remember thinking, whoa, I don't know many people who do this. He, was, he had just given his lectures. He has some wonderful lectures on, I think it's called Death of a Nation, on 2 Corinthians. So... Um, I think that was the characteristic, the, the true thing. It's not, to me, sharing platform is only of value if you're willing to move out of the main seat where the power is, is discussed. So, for instance, uh, Corey Edwards has a wonderful book. Uh, she's an African-American woman about building multi-ethnic and diverse churches. Her contention is that almost all of them, that uh, claim that they're multi-ethnic are still white churches because they really don't share power. You share power when the three seats in the main room are all equal. And so uh, it's called The Elusive Dream, her book. And I really believe that that is what uh, made Ray Stedman so distinct and unique at Peninsula Bible Church. And uh, I just read a biography of a woman, a, a memoir, who uh, actually went to that church, worked in that church. She became too liberal for it, but it was an interesting story. So so, so as we close up, because this is the interesting thing, right? We, we um, think about, or maybe think out loud as maybe the last question as we close up. 
because the book's great. And I think it, it, it can be used in so many different settings, right? Because we know the institutional and organizational research, when power is shared, there's greater well-being, there's greater engagement, there's greater success. When um, leadership teams are, are diversified, there's surprisingly greater success in Fortune 500 companies just on the bottom line. Um, there's that interesting research that says when, when boards have greater you know, female representation on them, they're less likely to commit fraud um, you know, in the Fortune 500 companies. And so you look at all these different things, but as a, an educator, where we know that leadership, the average principle lasts about three years. And I think in the book, one of your one of the people that you highlight says culture change takes seven years or pivot takes seven years. What would you say to the educator, Laura, that says, you know what, like the 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 superintendent, the assistant superintendent, those people that have come into you is like, stick with it. We need you here for the long term. And continue on this path of, of inviting us in? What would be your encouragement based on, on, on this book and based on what you've discovered? My encouragement, so taking it down to the teacher level, and absolutely, um, my district has talked a lot about if someone does something that makes you feel grateful to tell them. And so I've gotten, I've gotten texts or emails from my superintendent saying, Hey, you know, I was really grateful that you did this and, you know, such and such. And it, it makes a big difference. Taking it down to the teacher level, I, um, we all have power and I have power as a teacher in my classroom. And I want to use my power in a Tove way to make my students flourish. So my encouragement is sometimes it, you can feel as a teacher, like you don't have influence beyond your classroom. You can't control who you work for, who your principal is. And like you said, they come and go. But what I do have control over is my classroom. And when I open my door every morning and 20 little people walk through my classroom, I have the influence to love them and to treat them the way that Jesus would treat them to be gentle and kind and to put them first. And, um, that's possible. I can, I can transform the culture of my classroom and I can, I can influence that to the best of my ability. Well, and I appreciate that because even in the book, you know, there's this emphasis on start small and start in pockets right? Start in the pockets where you can create the transformation because so often we look at institutional transformation rather than those pockets, creating the pockets of goodness that then lead us to those overall transformations. And it, it's contagious, right? I There's a teacher on my team who has been teaching kindergarten a lot longer than I have been. And you just look at her and it's like sunshine. <laughs> and listening to the way that she greets her students in the morning is so enthusiastic. Like they're, they feel so welcome and so loved. And that sp has spread down our hallway. That's how all of us have come to greet our students in the morning. And it is the, those little pockets are contagious. They are contagious and they grow. 
So, so Scott, last question maybe, and throw it to you for the last word. There's the book, there's the part in the book where you talk about the church, new hope, no hope, right? You know, and then we look at this kind of, we can get really cynical about Christianity, about churches, about religion. We don't, our, my generation in particular doesn't accept authority very well. It, maybe just end us. What's your great hope for the next 10 years? Well, um, I happen to think that this uh, generation of deconstruction is mm -hmm. prophetic. Is prophetic in the sense that uh, they're tired of putting up with the crap. Is that is that word okay on this podcast? It's okay. I've had worse. I've heard Lutheran, Lutherans use stronger words. Um, is that they're tired of it, and they want to, in a sense, they want to get back to some basics you know, get back to Jesus. And the there, there are a lot of people who just say, oh, they're just whiners, they're complainers. I, I don't agree with that. I, I've listened to enough of these deconstructors over the last 15, 20 years to think that they really do have something to say. So my hope is in the regrounding, mm -hmm. the reestablishment of solid foundations you know, I think a lot of these people would say, I'd be glad to start a church that focuses on Tove. We just got a picture last week. I sent it to Laura. There's a church in Michigan, a church called Tove. I think it's called, or the Tove Community Church or something like that. I thought, there we go. I mean, that's starting with a really different foundation. And I think there's a lot of people who want to do that. So my hope is in... um seeing this kind of rebirth in the church on new foundations, better foundations. I love it. I love that word you use, regrounding, too, yeah. as we go through these generational regroundings of what's yeah. important. Laura, Scott, thank you so much. Thank you. Good thank to be you with you. Good to meet us. you. Yeah.